Welcome to the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire you to make the most of your journey in health and performance. Each episode will provide an in-depth discussion on a specific topic related to human performance. If you're a growth-minded individual seeking knowledge and better solutions, this podcast is for you. We're glad you're listening in and we're excited to learn alongside you. My name is Gabe Derman, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ellington Darden. Growing up in Conroe, Texas in the 40s and 50s, Dr. Darden developed a passion for resistance training. He fueled that passion with both education and practice and has devoted much of his life to helping people better understand exercise and health. He has written over 40 books on exercise, resistance training, and nutrition. He was honored by the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports as one of the top 10 health leaders in the United States. After meeting Arthur Jones, he joined Nautilus Sports where he served as Director of Research for 17 years. On today's episode, he shares with us what it is like to grow both in age and professionally with the paralleled rise of resistance training in the US, and he offers reflections from over 50 years in health and human performance. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Dr. Darden. It's great to be here with you today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. We've got a little cold spell here in Orlando, Florida, but uh, <laughs> nearly it would be about 75 degrees, but uh, I'm enjoying the cool weather, so I'm fine and ready to go. <laughs> what, what's cool for you? What's a cold spell in Florida look like? Well, it's been uh, it's been about thirty five or forty for the last couple of days, which is very unusual. I uh, I've lived in Orlando for about twenty years, and usually I wear Bermuda shorts year round, and this is one of the few years that I've had to put on long pants to go to a restaurant or move around. So. Fortunately, today I've got some shorts back on with sandals, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> All right, I'm feeling good as well, so let's do it. Uh, you, you've had quite the impact on the world of physical culture, resistance training, health and fitness. Your experiences and publications are extensive and impressive, and we're grateful to have the chance to sit down with you today and learn. So my first question to you is this, where did this journey start for you? Well, I was born and raised in Conroe, Texas, which was about 35 miles north of Houston. And uh, Conroe was a hotbed for sports, high school sports. I wanted to be a football player, but during the uh, 40s and 50s, you not only wanted to be a football player, but you wanted to be an all around athlete. Seems like most of the the guys that I admired in high school were not only football players, but they also played baseball and basketball and may have uh, run track. So you wanted to be an all around athlete. And I remember in about 1954 or 55, I was 10 or 11 years old. I watched the movie uh, on Jim Thorpe. 
who was a, a, a great Olympic athlete and an all around uh, performer. And Burt Lancaster played his role. And boy, I wanted to be like Jim Thorpe. You know, I wanted to be good in football, baseball, basketball, and be able to run and jump. So that's what I started off trying to do when I was in elementary and junior high school and high school. <clears throat> and fortunately, I was a good athlete, but I wasn't very big. I was about five foot 10 or 11 and weighed 140 or 150 pounds. I wanted to be bigger and stronger. And that's what got me interested in strength training or lifting barbells and dumbbells in the middle, middle part of 1956 and seven. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my first projects in grade school on athletics was about Jim Thorpe. Yeah, so obviously, he's the first kind of all around athlete and kind of do it all kind of guy. So pretty cool to hear that. So you began at a young age. And now when you're lifting with barbells, and you started with physical exercise and, and resistance training, where were you doing that local gyms? Was it something you were doing at home? And on top of that, what was that like during that time where people around you actively participating in resistance training? Was it a little bit taboo? What was going on there? Well, in my town in Conroe, which was about 10,000 people lived there, there wasn't a gym in town. <clears throat> well, there was a couple of guys that did have a barbell set. One guy I remember was small and he was into martial arts and nobody knew what martial arts were at that time, but he had some big arms and he had a collection of muscle magazines. And this was in, must've been in 57 or 58. So I borrowed some of his muscle magazines and eventually bought a 110 pound Healthways barbell set. And that was in 1958. And we had a coach in high school who, <clears throat> was in the Marine Corps or whatever. And he had a little bit of experience of lifting barbells. So I learned some from him, but there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of interest. I, uh, I was one of the few people in high school. We had about uh, 400 people in our high school, you know, say 200 guys and 200 girls. And I can remember well when I was in the ninth grade, I bought the barbell set and some of the guys in our neighborhood came around and started working out with me and there were two or three more that bought barbell sets. So I ended up with, with about 400 pounds of, of weights. And after three or four months, I was the only one left that was interested. So that was in 1958. And not many coaches, the coaches weren't big on lifting, you know. I knew more about it than they did after reading all these magazines that the buddy uh, gave me over that summer. So uh, I became somewhat of an expert when I was in the, the 10th grade, you know. <laughs> so it was interesting. Yeah, very cool. And you mentioned, you know, late 1950s and some of the magazines that were out there. I think 
Joe Weider probably started his magazine, Your Physique, I think started around that time. Which yeah, you couldn't get you couldn't get Joe Weider's magazines. There was down at our newsstand, they had uh, a couple of strength and health magazines. So I remember reading those initially. And uh, about a year later, some of the the Joe Weider's magazines came in. But I had I had an opportunity when I was in the ninth and tenth grade that I took metal shop in high school. And I ended up making uh, some racks for my uh, barbell equipment and there was a foundry in town. So I uh, had about 200 extra pound plates made, 200 pounds, 25 pound plates and some bigger 40 pound plates made at this foundry. So in my uh, parents' garage, I had a pretty good uh, setup. You know, I could do bench presses and squats, chin-ups and dips. And uh, that became my workout area when I was in high school. Very cool. I took metal sculpture in high school as well, a metal shop too, but I didn't make yeah. any cool barbell or gym equipment. But I did make a piston and a couple other things, learn how to plasma uh -huh. cut and weld, things like that. So... Very cool. So you started with some magazines, you started training uh, into high school. Obviously, you started, like you had mentioned, built your own rack, had some plates. And now you're in high school and you're involved with athletics. You start to have a deeper appreciation for resistance training. What led you down this road of, I want to now go to college and continue my education in this area? Because you got your bachelor's and your master's in physical ed from Baylor and your doctorate from F FSU, what made you, you know, is this, what led you down the road of, hey, I, I wanna be studying this now and this is something that I could see myself potentially dedicating, you know, my professional life to? Well, <clears throat> primarily Gabe, because I started building some muscle. I put on 10 or 15 pounds every year and uh, I went from 140 pounds to 190 pounds when I was a senior in high school. So my goal when I started high school was to weigh 180 pounds and be as big and as strong as some of the seniors that I saw and admired. And eventually I became one of those seniors who was bigger and stronger and, and uh, you know, I became uh, hooked hooked on strength training and bodybuilding. And uh, when I went to Baylor University, I, I played football for two years there, but I had seen a, uh, a bodybuilding show in Houston when I was a senior in high school. And I had even entered a contest, a teenage contest at one of the YMCA's in Houston when, when I was a senior and I met, uh, Ronnie Ray, who was a, uh, a big, strong teenager, a couple of years older than me. And he was, uh, he was about five foot one, but boy, he had a chest and a set of arms that were unbelievable on a kid at uh, that age and that size. So I started uh, talking to him and eventually met uh, Ed Cook, who I joined his gym in Waco, he was a bodybuilder. 
And uh, I met a lot of the guys from UT and Austin and from Dallas who were involved in bodybuilding and powerlifting. So that, uh, that excited me and got me going when I was in Waco in the, in the mid 1960s. What was it like in your formal education at Baylor and maybe a little bit at FSU, right? Because on the practical side, you're meeting people, you're reading magazines, you're building your own equipment, you're training. What was going on in the formal education side in relation to resistance training? Not much. The, you know, the people involved in physical education didn't know a lot about it. You would uh, study anatomy and physiology and, uh, you, you know, you, you learned the muscles and what they did and the kinesiology aspects of, of training, but you didn't, uh, there was only a couple of books available talking about progressive resistance exercise and they were just basic, you know, which Bob Hoffman and Joe Weider repeated and added their they're uh, 50 cents worth to it, you know, but most people did two or three sets of eight to 12 repetitions for 10 or 12 exercises, uh, three times a week. And, and then if you stayed with that for longer than a year, you got into split routines and, and training more often than three times a week. So, <clears throat> When I uh, started entering bodybuilding and powerlifting contest, that, that was the state of the art. And uh, that's what you did. And it just became uh, sort of more is better. And uh, I didn't know any difference than that until I met and started reading about Arthur Jones's concepts in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get in a little bit about Arthur Jones and your involvement with Nautilus, which I'm really excited to hear about today. And, you know, Jan Todd and the Stark Center, they've done a tremendous job of highlighting a lot of significant eras of physical culture. You mentioned progressive, progressive resistance exercise and Thomas Delorme. And then obviously we had Dr. Peter Karbovich and Bob Hoffman right. at Springfield College in the, you know, in 1940. Was that idea of muscle bound still very present during that time? And you think that contributes to why resistance training wasn't so popular? What was your experience or, or in talking with people around communities and athletics and coaches, were there a lot of people that were scared about this muscle idea of becoming muscle bound through resistance training? Yeah, the people who were not involved feared you know, be, becoming muscle bound. And the coaches that weren't involved feared that. But once you got involved, it's like uh, Jan and Terry used to say, all of a sudden you realize that it, it uh, lifting uh, barbells and dumbbells made you stronger and also made you more flexible and, and made you into a better uh, athlete. So, the, the common person, the common athlete who wasn't involved in strength training, they were afraid. But once you jumped in and 
and experienced it for a couple of months, you realize that it was a myth. And, you know, eventually, I think most people today understand, or even 20 or 30 years ago, the, the athletes uh, started strength training and seeing the benefits. But when I played football at Baylor, there, there was only a handful of athletes that did strength training. And it was probably the same way at the University of Texas and throughout the country. Yeah, and I believe in the late 1960s or so, that's when we had Boyd Epley, right? A little bit more known name and story within strength, yeah. within resistance training and power. But we had Boyd Epley with a similar experience in that he was an undergrad. He started working with the football team, and all of a sudden, something was happening over at Nebraska football, right? And yeah, only if you're well, involved that's with the, it the was training. All that, over in, throughout the country, you know, if you had someone, that was interested in strength training that brought it into the university and college setting, then uh, you, you, could, you could see the results in a matter of a couple of months, but it took several years for it to get around. And uh, Epley helped, uh, helped that come about primarily because, you know, Nebraska started winning football games and, and, the national championship, you know, that they had. So you always start looking, try to see what, uh, whoever is the national champion, what are they doing? Because they may know, know some secrets that we don't on the other side of the river, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, along with Boyd Epley, you have Alvin Roy as well and, and LSU. So like you said, winning football games always helps. So, um how about the influence of Dr. Kenneth Cooper and the term aerobics and the aerobic center in Dallas in the sixties was a lot of the fitness industry focused on aerobics and less hesitant to get involved with aerobics after the birth of the Cooper aerobic center. What was that like during that yeah, time? Yeah, well, they, these, uh, during, during the sixties and seventies, Books were uh, an important aspect of exercise and food and nutrition. You know, the publishing industry was uh, very strong then, unlike it is today. You know, most of the information that was available were in books and in the magazines that were published. So Kenneth Cooper, had several best-selling books that pushed uh, primarily aerobic activity or running as the best all-around exercise if you wanted to go from fatness to fitness or get in shape. So uh, that was a major influence and there were several running books that became bestsellers. And uh, then the the women got involved and Jane Fonda and, and Denise Austin and, and some of the, the uh, aerobic people that tied into Ken Cooper, you know, broadened the concept and took it to the average uh, woman on the street. So women are traditionally, they, they buy more books on physical fitness than men do. So that started a craze 
of doing uh, various calisthenic exercises to music. And uh, that spread, you know, across the country. And it wasn't until later that strength training became an important aspect in uh, both women's exercise and men's exercise. So <clears throat> fortunately that took place along with, uh, like we we're gonna talk about soon, the Arthur Jones era of bringing Nautilus equipment into the equation. Yeah, and then right, right before we do that, you were at Florida State University yeah. and you're getting your doctorate in food and nutrition. Well, actually, what? my doctorate was in exercise science. I had, uh, when I got involved in, in exercise science at Florida State in 1968, to get a PhD in exercise science, you had to have uh, a written knowledge of two foreign languages. And I saved that till last. And fortunately, after a couple of years, they changed that requirement and said you could have 20 hours outside the College of Education. So exercise science, physical education, motor learning, these were, were study areas in the College of Education. <clears throat> and the College of Education said that to substitute for a foreign language, you could go outside the College of Education. So I went outside to food and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up getting 20 hours in food and nutrition and then hanging around for another year and doing some postdoctoral study with another 20 hours in food and nutrition. So that was my connection to, uh, to the nutrition and bringing it into physical fitness and strength training and bodybuilding. Got it. Okay. So then once you finish up there, how did you get involved with Arthur Jones and Nautilus? Well, I had met Arthur Jones uh, started writing for Ironman magazine, which was, which was a little known publication in the fifties and sixties. You could, you could, occasionally see it on the newsstand, but not often. But Arthur Jones started writing for Ironman magazine and it created a, a huge uh, amount of publicity because Arthur met uh, Casey Viator at the 1970 Mr. America contest that Chris Dickerson won. And uh, he brought uh, Casey to his, uh, to his facility in Lake Helen, Florida in uh, the summer of 1970. And Casey Viator won the Mr. America contest the following year, 1971. <clears throat> so I met Casey when he, he lived outside of uh, New Orleans in Lafayette or New Liberia, Louisiana, when I was uh, in Waco. And he started coming over as a teenager, entering a lot of the bodybuilding shows that I entered. And he was three or four years younger than I was. So I managed to beat him when he was 
you know, 16 or 17, but all of a sudden when he entered the 1970 Mr. America contest, he got third place and I think I got 10th place. So I was wondering what in the world is this kid doing? <laughs> and Arthur Jones uh, brought him to Florida and he turned into a phenomenal, you know, who was a very big, very strong. And uh, that got me interested in Arthur Jones. So when I finished up at Florida State University in Tallahassee, I started working with Arthur Jones in Lake Helen, Florida the, the same year. And uh, Casey was there and I was there. And so we started a huge uh, movement and a lot of publicity toward the Nautilus equipment, which, which has just been organized and started in 1970. Yeah, and then it sounds like you know, looking at your resume and a lot of the publications, you start to really start to pump out a lot of books and publish writing about training, right? Yeah, so now well, you're entering this phase of, we had a lot of magazines, but now we're sitting down with research and, and really going through formal publication process for a lot of the resistance training recommendations. Yeah, well, correctly. this is interesting because when I started Florida State University. They were on the quarter system there. This was in the spring of 1968. They had four 10 week quarters in a year. Baylor and the University of Texas, they were on the semester system, you know, and you had, I think 17 or 18 week semesters. But at Florida State, in the graduate school, they uh, pushed you hard in uh, the various courses to do pilot studies to get ready to do your dissertation two or three years later. And uh, <clears throat> I, I was fascinated by these little pilot studies. Now a pilot study in physical education or exercise science, you would take a handful of people and put them through some type of exercise program recorded and you would write it up in a style that was similar to the way you would write up your dissertation. Now, there were about 15 or 20 students involved in working on a PhD at Florida State. And I was the only one out of the group that liked to do research and writing. And I got good at it. The rest of them would save it to the very last thing, you know, and they would end up not doing a, a good job. Well, I had a couple of teachers that taught me how to write, how to do research and how to present it in the right way. And I was good at it right from the start. So that got me an advantage in all the coursework that I had to take to do my dissertation two years later. And uh, I, had, I had about 20 publications during my last year at Florida State. Wow. 
and half of them were in the scientific journals. You know, most people didn't like to write in scientific journals. Well, I got the hang of that easy on or uh, early on and uh, got good at it. So when I met Arthur Jones in 1970, he, uh, he encouraged me to continue with my research and writing and get things published. And getting those articles published led to getting books published. And I learned again how to do that in a very efficient manner. So that kicked off me to getting books published in Chicago and New York and uh, figuring out how to market those books around the United States and having Nautilus behind me in the mid 1970s helped a great deal. So that, uh, that, that, that just worked for me, you know? Yeah, looking at the timeline of some of your publications, it looked like a lot of your early work was involved mostly in bodybuilding. Is that correct? Yeah, bodybuilding. And it's like uh, I had a book called The Nautilus Fitness Book and then another one called The Nautilus Bodybuilding Book. And both books sold very well. But people would buy the bodybuilding book they weren't, they weren't, they didn't want to tell you they were interested in bodybuilding, but they were, <laughs> you, you know, how many guys do you know that want 18 inch arms, but, uh, and, and would pay huge amounts of money to get 18 inch arms, but they wouldn't tell you that, you know, Yeah. but when you, when you went back home and they were in the garage, you know, they do an extra set of curls and chin ups and, tricep extensions, you know, if they were going to do anything, they're going to work their arms. So uh, I learned that early on that, uh, that a lot of men were interested in bodybuilding. A lot of boys were interested in bodybuilding. So I had uh, <clears throat> several hookups with Chris Lunn, who was a famous bodybuilding photographer. And he was as interested in the whole concept as I was. So he would send me 50 or 60 just great bodybuilding pictures that he would take at the gyms around the country and at the various contests. And I would incorporate these pictures into my bodybuilding books. And then he eventually, we would bring him into the Nautilus headquarters and he would take pictures of uh, good looking people on the Nautilus machines. So that opened uh, both doors, you know, it opened doors to get, get books that were centered around the general population and books that were centered around uh, bodybuilders and people who wanted to go in that direction. So it, it was a hot time in the 70s and 80s for that. Yeah, I think the last few decades, right? Resistance training gains significant popularity, especially with the publications and then commercial gyms, uh, the increase of the quantity of commercial gyms in the United States oh, yeah. and also the adoption of resistance training and the inclusion of resistance training equipment in the YMCAs. 
right? Yeah. Have a heavy influence on the general population. And then obviously the, the, just the increased interest in athletics too and human performance yeah. capability, I think get us a lot, drew a lot of people in, correct? All three of those concepts, you know, you had, uh, we had hundreds, thousands of, of people that were opening these Nautilus fitness centers. And then, like you said, we had the YMCA's and we had uh, just people being more interested in aerobics and sports and getting outside and, and, and trying to get fit. So that all came together in the 1970s and 1980s at uh, the time that, that I was really into doing these studies and the research and the writing as it related to people getting better results from what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And two books that jumped out at me when I was looking through the list, both were in the nineties for you, bigger muscles in 42 days. Yeah. And a flat stomach ASAP. Yeah. Well, those, uh, those were good selling books. And, uh, I was around people who wanted to, uh, perform and get better results when, in 1978, being in uh, Lake Helen, Florida, we had people coming through every week that wanted, uh, wanted to buy Nautilus equipment. So we had seminars and, and uh, open houses all the times. But one of the guys that came through there was Joe Cerulli, who was in Gainesville, Florida, where the university is, the biggest university in Florida. And he started a club in 1978 and he had over a hundred Nautilus machines there. So in visiting him and in him visiting us, that opened a huge pathway for me to go to Gainesville, which was about a hundred miles from where I lived in, in uh, central Florida and get groups of people to go through organized in a way that would allow me to uh, train them in specific ways, take before and after pictures and measurements and tie those into the books that I wanted to write. So <clears throat> the book you mentioned with uh, Bigger Muscles in 42 Days was a part of that. And that took place in Dallas at a, at a uh, big club there and uh, a flat stomach ASAP was primarily done in Gainesville, Florida. Mm -hmm. So uh, those were two hot areas, you know, building your body, getting rid of your midsection that had fat around it. Uh, <clears throat> those were interesting projects that sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Yes, and then moving forward into the 21st century for resistance training, looking at the timeline of your publications once again, you then publish new high intensity training and body fat breakthrough. It appears now that there was a focus or a transition into things like high intensity interval training, eccentric training. Can you talk a little bit about that and how things changed from the 70s, 80s, 90s into the 21st century? Yeah, I... Uh... Back in the mid-70s, Arthur Jones had done some studies with the negative part of exercise, and he was convinced 
that that was an ignored uh, training technique that should be incorporated more. So we established that back in the 70s, but we didn't have, uh, you know, negative exercise or ways to accentuate the lowering. It's a powerful way and you can, all of a sudden you can get too much of it, you know, so you have to know what you're doing or you can injure yourself. Well, it wasn't until, uh, <clears throat> oh, it was 2008, one of the big Nautilus distributors in Europe contacted me and he said, Ellington, he said, I've got a way to uh, accentuate the lowering. It's much better than anything you did at Nautilus and anything you've done with a barbell. So he was in Sweden, Stockholm, Sweden. I went over there and I was amazed at what he'd done with Nautilus machines. He had taken the Nautilus concept of lifting and lowering on a weight stack machine and uh, put a motor at the bottom and a sensor and he had it tilting. So he could tilt the weight stack to 45 degrees and a half a second which would allow you to lift the resistance with less weight. And then he would upright the weight stack during the lowering. So it gave you 40% more resistance on the lower. And that interested me a great deal. So I started working with him. He called his equipment X-Force. And Joe Cerulli was the first person in Florida to take that concept and uh, get 15 of these X-Force machines in 2012 in Gainesville, Florida. So I did a lot of research for the next two years there with the X-Force concept. And eventually I, I uh, figured out ways to apply that same concept to barbells and dumbbells and to machines that didn't have a motor at the bottom, you know. So I think it's pretty well been established today that uh, eccentric exercise or the negative phase of exercise is the most important phase of building muscle size and strength. So you got to use it correctly. And uh, there are people that know how to do that, but there are a lot of people that don't know how to do that. So it's still a, a, a mystery to a lot of people how to really take advantage of the negative phase of exercise. I've written about it in a number of books. Yeah, and as you consider now the heavy influence of athletics and now, you know, in the last 10 years or so, you have the takeoff of sports science and data and things along those lines. What is that like for you thinking about your early days in Conroe, Texas, and now you're seeing teams, associations, organizations, colleges invest heavily in the technology side. Did you ever think that it would get to this point? Oh, probably not. <clears throat> but you got to realize that still <clears throat> the, the whole science of it has been infiltrated with uh, a lot of nonsense. So 
uh, I see, I see uh, when I go around to the various gyms and the various colleges and universities that have incorporated all this strength training, I still see things that bother me. You know, it seems like you've got to understand how to separate deep truths from deep nonsense. And I still see just a lot of deep nonsense in, in uh, football and basketball and all the training programs that exist to make athletes bigger and stronger. Um, it's a mess. And of course that deep nonsense has always been involved in food and nutrition. So, uh, you know, a good example is a low carbohydrate diet that's been around for 50 years. And it was proven 40 years ago that low carbohydrate diets are not very efficient at losing fat, but they've continued to be believed in for, for the last 40 years. And uh, Carl Sagan said years ago that, uh, once something's been around and for 40 years, all of a sudden it becomes the truth, you know. So low carbohydrate diets, high protein diets are considered to be the way to lose fat and build muscle. And that's just not the case. You know, if there's anything that athletes get more than enough of in their eating, it's protein, but high protein supplements still remain one of the best selling products that strength coaches and athletes push, you know, to get bigger and stronger. You just don't need large amounts of protein to build muscle. With all of your experiences on the resistance training side and research, and then also in the nutrition side, was there one that you always enjoyed researching more than the other? Uh, well, I, I tended to, to move in the direction of trying to get rid, talk about these myths and this foolishness that continues to be around for, especially for the younger athletes, you know, because it is a, you know, strength training itself would have probably died in the 1950s and 60s if Bob Hoffman and Joe Weider hadn't created, you know, high protein products and all the various uh, wheat germ oil and brewer's yeast and all this stuff to sell, uh, to sell to the teenagers. And the, the primary reason was that how many times you don't wear out a barbell, you know, you buy a hundred pounds of barbell plates and you still got them 10, 15, 20 years from there. So uh, bringing into the arena, all the food products was the way that Bob Hoffman and Joe Weider really made their money. It wasn't office selling strength training equipment. Got it. And shifting gears a little bit, 
1989, I believe you were honored by the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sport as one of the top 10 health leaders in the United States. What was that experience like? Well, I got to meet a lot of people who were experts in their area. And that was meaningful to me. I made a lot of friends, but when you get groups, this President's Council on Physical Fitness and this group that I was a member of had about 75 to 80 people that were experts. And when you brought them all together to try to determine some uh, guidelines, you know, you had one group that would tell you that the answer was up, one group that would say down, one group would say east, one group would say west. And so uh, you never came to any conclusions because all the groups were arguing to favor what they had written books and done research on. So, uh, you know, it's just like the political scene today. You know, when you get all the politicians together, they can't decide what's right or wrong. They all go in the different directions of their background. So it, it leads to misunderstanding and calamity and just very general guidelines, nothing specific in the direction of how to do something in the most efficient manner. So I've always tried to stick to the basics and, and try to tell people how to do things efficiently and not take years to do something you could do in months. Yeah, and considering all your experience in health and fitness and resistance training, is there an area that you wish you had spent more time researching or spent more time exploring? Yeah, older people. You know, I'm almost 80 years of age now. And uh, of course, I'm interested in <laughs> what's going on in my own body. But when, when I was 30, 40, and 50, I wasn't interested in the older population. And I wish I was. I wish um, I had uh, been motivated to work with people in that age group more. Now there, you know, there's some stuff that's being done in it now, but, but it's still scanty, you know, it still needs to be explored in greater detail. So I wish I'd have done that now, you know, I wish I'd have done that then. Yeah, and that's a great lead into our last question today, which is, what is your own fitness routine like these days? You've, I imagine over the years, you've done a lot of different routines. You've taken part in a lot of different types of training prescriptions and methodologies. How about now, as you just mentioned, you wish you had done some research and training in the longevity space. Yeah, well, what is your fitness routine like now? I learned, uh, you know, I learned in the 1970s that harder but briefer exercise was better when it comes to muscle building and strength training. And uh, initially, you know, I would spend an hour in the gym and eventually I cut that down after I got involved with Nautilus and Arthur Jones and high intensity training to 20 to 30 minutes, two or three times a week. Uh, 
I remember Arthur Jones said one time, he said, it took me 20 years to learn that two sets of 10 exercises or eight to 10 exercises were better than four sets. And he said, it also took me another 20 years to realize that one set of eight exercises was better than two sets of eight exercises. So he said, it took me 40 years to realize that harder and briefer exercise was the way to go. But can you get that across to general population who wants to believe that their secrets to exercise and diet and that probably more exercise is better than less exercise. So my routine today is I do, uh, I do six or eight exercises two or three times a week, one set, and that's about it. So I Very wish I'd learned that way back there. You know, it would have saved me some time and effort, and I could have probably written more books. <laughs> yeah. And are you still using those plates and barbells and racks that you made in high school? No, it's interesting. I had a I sold all my stuff in Conroe to a buddy for a hundred dollars, I think, in about nineteen seventy-four. And eventually we hired him to work for Nautilus. So he took my five or 600 pounds of barbells and dumbbells and a bench or two, put them in a trailer and hauled them to Florida. <laughs> and that was in 1978 or nine. And we had a sports medicine clinic at Nautilus. And we started working with some athletes at Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona Beach. And my buddy, Ken Hutchins was his name. He had all these barbells. So he took them over at Bethune-Cookman College and started training their football team with them. And Ken told me, he said, well, unfortunately, we didn't have good, a good setup over there where we could lock everything up. He said, all the, all the equipment was stolen within the first three months. So somewhere today, you know, you can't wear out barbells and dumbbells. So somewhere today in Daytona Beach, Florida is my old strength training equipment, <laughs> probably being used by uh, some youngsters that are interested in becoming bigger and stronger. <laughs> yeah. And last question today that I have for you, moving forward, where do you think the field of health and fitness goes or where do you hope to see it go over the next 20 to 30 years? Well, it seems like things are moving in the direction of computerized exercise. Uh, and as you've experienced here, uh, or I, as I've experienced, at 80 years of age, nobody wants to publish a book that I can write today. In fact, books, from, from what I read now, uh, when I started writing books in the 70s and 80s, I read there were 
1,500 bookstores in New York City at that time. And still today, most of the books are sold in New York that get published. And most of them are sold in New York City. But those 1,500 bookstores in New York City, I think have been reduced to about 300. Why would somebody want to buy a book on strength training today when you've got hundreds of free websites about strength training and bodybuilding where you can get all kinds of information? Now, like I was talking about, it's, uh, it's deep nonsense. Most of the material you read about strength training and bodybuilding on the internet 50% of it is deep nonsense. It's just, uh, you, you got to attract someone to your, your website or your podcast or whatever you're doing. And you have to have something that's new and different, not old and ordinary. But like I, my pitch today is that the old ordinary stuff from the 1950s and 60s it's just like a barbell and a dumbbell. It's still usable. You can still get really good results from barbells and dumbbells if you use them correctly. Unfortunately, most people don't use them correctly. And you can still get good results from Nautilus machines or any type of exercise machine if it's in working condition, if you use it properly, which means use it harder, briefer, with uh, perhaps a slower speed of movement. Don't slam and bang and try to see how much you can lift one or two times. Yeah. Well, great, Dr. Darden. I, I appreciate you joining me today and spending some time to sure. give a little bit of a historical view on fitness and health and resistance training and sharing some stories. I know I, I wrote a lot of names down, a lot of people that I want to go uh, look up now and and uh, read some stories about. So I appreciate that and definitely invigorating, at least from a historical perspective uh, and, and augmenting our appreciation for the historical side of. Yeah. Well, you know, one more culture. thing, I think I told you early on, and I have a 20 year old son who is, he's six foot four and weighs about 200 pounds and he's stronger than I ever was. <laughs> But he ought to be because I've trained him since he was about three years of age. Yeah. But he's at Florida State University and he helps the uh, basketball strength training coach there. He puts the basketball players through a lot of their workouts. <clears throat> but uh, if you talk to him, he's got, he could have been a bodybuilder, probably a good one if he was interested, but he wasn't interested in bodybuilding anywhere close to the same extent that I was. And if you followed bodybuilding recently, it's a good thing he wasn't interested because he'd, he'd have to uh, move to California and get involved in all <laughs> the drugs and all the, the deep nonsense, you know? So I'm glad he's not interested in bodybuilding. He's interested in in finance and business, 
but he uh, he works. He works with people who are interested in strength training. So anyway, I thought I'd drop that in. You know, if I had to do over again, I don't know if I'd go through the bodybuilding and strength training area or not. Yeah, well, it's cool to see at least. Get out of it now. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's cool to see at least that passion for it and and. Uh, drive for for learning more especially in human performance is shared through a generation uh for the darden so we appreciate that yeah and uh, appreciate your time very much today and uh, looking forward to connecting with you soon again you bet gabe thank you for having me on yeah you got it We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. To stay up to date on all things Kaiser, follow us at Kaiser Fitness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more content, you can visit our Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and at our website, www.kaiser.com. Thank you and have a great day.